financial markets and credit agencies would lose confidence in the country. All of us face dark times. And yet here we are on the eve of this year's federal budget and tax receipts are far exceeding budgetary projections. We're experiencing a boom in infrastructure, wool, tourism. Commodity prices are surging again. And the global economy is powering ahead. So what does this benign outlook tell us about the state of our economy? Wages, taxes, deficits, all that, and the political environment, plus the big public policy challenges we face. Ben Oquist is the Executive Director of the Australia Institute in Canberra, and Simon Cowan is Head of Research at the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney, where, disclaimer, I'm the Executive Director. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. The economy is strengthening, yet wages remain stagnant. Simon, how do you account for this? Look, we've seen that phenomenon across the Western world. Australia doesn't have the same problems with stagnant wages that we've seen elsewhere, however. I mean, Australian wages grew very strongly across all um, sectors for a number of decades, at least until, you know, sort of 2009, 2010. We've seen a slowdown since then. Um, But there are also signs that wages uh, may pick up soon. We've seen growth in wages in the US, for example. March's figures showed growth of nearly 5%. So there's a possibility that we'll see that growth there. But there are a number of factors that are playing into stagnant wages that we've seen. It's a very uneven economy in Australia. Some sectors are doing very well. Some sectors are doing quite poorly. And we've seen a lot of disruption, uh, both in terms of global trade and in terms of automation. So there are a lot of factors that play into wage growth that may play out over the next few years. So we've had one of the largest and longest income booms in this country for decades until the of the commodities boom. Ben, how do you account for wage stagnation? Well, I think in some ways it's not surprising. Um, We've had a a long period of time uh, from a lot of experts telling us we needed to contain wages and we've put in place structures and systems to try and hold wages back. And the reality is I think over time um, we've got to be careful what we wish for coming true. And we've now got the likes of the RBA saying it's a problem that we've got low wage growth. And in a way, it's not surprising. Um, Workers don't have as much power as they used to have. And that kind of structural weakness of workers, I think, is flowing through to lower wage growth. And it's creating not just kind of problems for society, but for the economy as well. And um, and, and unless workers can kind of get some of that institutional power back... Mm. Um, I think it's likely that we're going to see low wage growth continue. It's not just about supply and demand anymore. And to the extent that wage stagnation continues, Simon, uh, we saw in the United States in 2016 wage stagnation, especially among the white working class, that was seen as one of the reasons for Donald Trump's rise. Is wage stagnation so dangerous in this country we might see the rise of more populist characters? Oh, look, I think we're seeing a rise of populism in Australia. You can look at the rise of Hanson. You can look at people like Nick Xenophon in in South Australia, and and they're similar, although um, obviously not to Trumpian levels of of populist uh, thoughts. I don't think that Australia has a wage stagnation problem that you see in the US or the UK that would lead to that style of change. Uh, I think we've had periods of relatively low wage growth in the past. Um, It's yet to be seen whether or not what we're facing now is the sort of uh, more long-term problems they had in the US where wages were stagnant for 30-odd years or the UK where they were sort of closer to 20 or 30 years as well. And that compulsory voting probably helps guard against nativism too, right, Ben? Well, I think that we've got a choice of which direction we're taking it, but I do think it's a problem, that kind of insecure work, casualisation, part-time work, 
we've got new research coming out from the Australia Institute Centre for Future Work showing, showing that half the workforce now in Australia is not in traditional full-time work or work that comes with, for example, holiday leave. And I think that is creating a problem. And you've got the RBA governor himself warning that the dangers of this low wage growth means that the kind of social fabric is torn, that the kind of promise of economic prosperity is not being delivered to ordinary workers. And I think that will create political problems. But it is our choice which direction to take that in. We could go the Trump way or we could find some other way to deal with the issue. Well, let's turn to the budget. What should the government do with the windfall gains from sharply increased tax receipts? Simon Cowan, tax cuts, spending increases or charter course to a sustainable surplus? Well, look, I think we need to move towards surplus simply because we've been in structural deficit for so long. Unfortunately, windfall gains, particularly short-term one-off windfall gains, are not good vehicles for charting a sustainable path back to surplus. Um, we've seen in the past that booms in revenue have led to uh, sustained increases in spending. As the revenue flows away, the spending remains. Mm. Um, so I think that you know we need to be charting a path towards surplus generally, but not as a result of these windfall gains. So you say, what should we do with those benefits? I think they should be returned to taxpayers, particularly middle-income taxpayers who've seen very little relief from bracket creep and other increases in taxes for a long time. Meanwhile, who's talking about debt in Canberra? Our debt-to-GDP ratio is rising more rapidly than most other OECD countries. Ben? Australia's got a pretty low level of debt compared to OECD countries, and I think this is a debate that we're starting to see a little bit more of in Australia. We're actually a low debt country. We're a really? low. What about the household debt? That's apparently uh, at 190 percent of GDP. Well, we're talking about government debt. Right. Uh, Australia is a fairly low debt country when it, com- it comes to government debt. We're we're a low tax country. Mm. We're a low spending country. And I think the danger here. I agree with something that Simon says. The danger here with this potentially temporary one-off revenue gain um, being turned into a permanent tax cut is very dangerous. We live in a different age where economics and politics has changed. Um, uh, Insecure work, inequality, low wage growth is demanding new answers from government and um, uh, tax cuts are not a way that's going to address any of those issues. And um, I think the debate we're starting to need to have in Australia is just getting going. How do we get more revenue to build the type of society that addresses the issues to stop the rise of the likes of Trump. My guests are Ben Oquist from the Australia Institute in Canberra and Simon Cowan from the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney. Let's turn to the Banking Royal Commission, which has exposed some serious shortcomings in our financial industry. Um, How badly damaged are the banks? Well, they are. And I I think you you can tell simply from the words of uh, Scott Morrison that they are. And he's been leading a charge for uh, more regulation on the banks. And I think that's the big change that's going to come out of this discussion about the banks. Australia has, would you believe it, the most profitable bank sector in the world. A staggering equivalent of the bank's profits make up 2.9% of Australia's GDP. And in that context, the public is demanding more action on the banks and the Treasurer has been delivering it. And I think we can expect uh, uh, more regulation and tighter controls on the banks as both the government and the public demands it. We keep hearing that the financial scandals put a greater onus on the government to be fair in this budget or at least perceived to be fair. Uh, Simon, to what extent do these scandals hurt the case uh, for company tax cuts? 
Oh, look, I think that's a perception and a political perception rather than an economic issue. I mean, and what we've seen in this debate from the start is this this idea that we need to be ensure that companies use the proceeds of this tax cut to trickle down benefits to workers, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of how the economics of this works. The benefit of the cut flows from investment. The investment flows from the additional returns from a lower rate of tax. Those additional investments flow through into wages and productivity. Uh, the economic mechanisms are relatively clear, even if they're hard to determine um, in practice. So it doesn't actually harm the economic case. It really only harms the political one. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the debate we're having over company taxes is no longer about the economics. It's almost entirely about the optics and the politics. Company tax cuts, but also the danger of regulatory overreach. We often hear that that could restrict the supply of credit and financial advice to those who need the most. Ben? Sure, you've got to get the balance right. Um, but I do think uh, it... it if anything has got to come out of this uh, debate about the banks, it's going to be the need for stronger regulation. You can't possibly argue after this we need less regulation. But I think um, on the on the issue of company tax cuts, I think Simon's uh, uh, repeating something that I think is misconceived. There's this idea that the company tax cuts work economically but not politically. I think actually the evidence has continually come out that the economic case for the company tax cuts is poor. And, of course, the banks are on the nose and there's a great deal of a public um, displeasure with them. But I actually think it's highlighted the weakness of the economic case because when it's pointed out that $13 billion of the $65 billion is going to go to the banks, people can see that that is not a sensible return of, on, on, the, on the money from the government. It's not that company tax cuts don't deliver some economic activity. It's just that it's such a poor return for such a big government outlay. According to an Alpha Beta study uh, this week, close to half the Australian companies that received a company tax cut in 2015 either boosted uh, investment spending or hiring. Does that make Simon Cowan's point? No, I think it makes the exact opposite point. What it shows is what a bad investment company tax cuts are. Half the money is not being returned in investment or higher wages or more employment. It's just not a sensible spend of such a large government outlay. Simon Cowan. Look, uh, the money doesn't disappear. The, the money that's withheld by companies is invested in companies. The money that's returned to shareholders is either consumed and then in return to the economy or it's invested in other companies and other opportunities and thereby return to the economy. Um, we see the wage growth and that, again, returns to the economy. I mean, I think, you know, we're having an argument about the, the perception of this. Uh, I, I think the economics of it is relatively clear and that's why uh, organisations like the OECD and Treasury that, that are not, you know, far right and neoliberal institutions are saying there is a benefit here. It's a clear benefit. Um, they're not overselling the benefits of it. There's still a cost. And that's why, you know, we're not seeing people saying the company tax cut pays for itself, just that it's a good investment of money. Politics, banking scandals aside, the economy is doing better than anyone had the right to expect, you know, a year ago. Economies are bullish in the United States, Britain, France, Germany, Japan, in this country. And yet, despite the good economic times, the political leaders in all these nations are unpopular. Ben, how do you account for the fraying connection between politics and economics in these countries? Well, the reality is that the lived experience of economic growth is not necessarily beneficial to the public. And that's where the disconnect has opened up. It's no use just having economic growth if it's not delivered in actual increase in living standards in your quality of life. And that's where the disconnection has happened. Mm. Rising inequality... Uh, 
cuts to government services potentially in some countries. It means that people's real-world experience of economic growth is not positive. The reality is that people care more about the quality of the growth than just the size of the growth. Does it affect them? And for a long time, they've been told that the way to get economic growth is to cut education or to cut health spending and to have less of less government. Now, the problem with that is that that often delivers people a worse result. And I think it's it's that disconnect that's causing that disconnect in politics. Writing in the New York Times just last week, Rusha Sharma, she's the chief economist at Morgan Stanley in New York, a past guest on this program, he says, quote, for most of the post-war era, voters in the big democracies rewarded leaders for strong economies and punished them for policies that hurt growth. Now the link between good economics and good politics seems to have broken. Simon Cowan. Look, it's an interesting thesis, but I think it's probably too soon to determine that it's broken because you can easily cite examples where the opposite is true. You only got to look at across in New Zealand where, you know, Key and Bill English had an extended run. We saw a, an, an improvement in the, the budget and the economy in New Zealand over that time. We saw Stephen Harper in Canada. I mean, John Howard here in, in Australia. That's a decade ago now. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, to a certain extent, there's still evidence to suggest that, that thesis holds. Um, the important point, of course, to make is that government doesn't necessarily control how the economy works, good or bad, and that we've often seen politicians taking benefit for the, the growth generated by the private sector, mm. pretending that's somehow caused by or generated by government. And I think it'd be, it'd be a good thing if uh, politicians were held account for the actual impact of their actions rather than the perception of the economy as a whole. And it just occurred to me that Paul Keating presided over a double-digit recession and he still beat John Houston in 1993. Finally, gentlemen, the big picture. Ben, what do you think uh, the big public policy challenge um, should be that's going to be overshadowed by the budget on Tuesday night? Well, it's something that I kind of mentioned before. It's that economic growth is not delivering for a whole lot of people. Uh, that inequality is now not just the kind of political issue of our age, but the economic issue of our age. That inequality, as the OECD will tell you, or the IMF, is delivering not just poor social incomes, but poor economic uh, outcomes. That high inequality means growth is lagging behind. The real lived, real world experience of economic growth is not delivering, especially for young people. You've got something like a third of young people unemployed or underemployed got half of young people um, in, in casual work. You've got high housing prices locking people out of the housing market. You've got increased uh, education costs. And I think um, the missing part of this budget is going to be a lot of focus on older people. I think the missing part of this budget will be how that economic growth, uh, uh, insecure work, uh, inequality, low wage growth, high housing prices is harming young people. I think that's going to be something missing from the budget. What's the big issue missing on Tuesday night, Simon Cowan? Uh, look, I mean, we last election we saw the Medicare campaign um, and I think the government has yet to do something to resolve the issue around health. Uh, unfortunately, I suspect that we're seeing a short-term buy-off of the vested interests in health rather than a resolution of the significant issues around the health system, the, the resolution of the, the distribution of costs between state and federal government, the fact that, you know, at the New South Wales level in particular, we're expected to see hospital costs in, grow by enormous amounts over the next two decades. So I think we need a longer-term resolution of how we, both at a state level, a federal level, and at an individual level, how we we pay for our growing healthcare costs over forward estimates in the next few years. So rising health costs for you, rising e e economic inequality for you, Ben, 
neither of you has focused on the challenge of uh, digital disruption, the, 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 the dangers of robotics, artificial intelligence. Uh, won't these technological changes lead to increased unemployment and displacement of those working class folks we were talking about in the United States? Ben? Well, uh, that, that is a good issue. It is something we need to address. But I, I, I agree with uh, Simon. We've got to have to work out how to pay for it. And the big challenge for Australia is where to get the revenue to pay for these services, where to get the revenue to help deal with that disruption that's coming. We're going to need a, a stronger role for government. And I think that's been the shift in the economic and political debate, not just here, but around the world. And there needs to be the revenue to pay for it. The creative destruction of digital economy. I'm a I'm surprisingly um, enthusiastic about the the need for creative destruction and positive about the future. Uh, and I've seen to be one of the few people in that debate that is. But my research indicates that there hasn't been a significant impact on employment from digital disruption yet. There hasn't been the creation of this long term core of people who are unemployable. And you know historical evidence suggests that this disruption actually, uh, far from harming people um, in sort of those low employment situations, actually creates creates more opportunities for them to do interesting and, and new things. Simon, Ben, a lovely debate to be continued. Thank Thanks, you. Simon. Thanks, Tom.